Amen. You guys may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, just turn with me. I'm going to take you to a couple of different places, but I'm going to camp out primarily in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, you can just turn there. We are in the middle of a series where we are just going over various doctrines in the Bible, and we're looking at how our statement of faith, the 1689, kind of summarizes those various uh, doctrines that are in the Scripture. And so we're trying to, some weeks we're spending the majority of time in a particular text, other weeks we're doing more of a biblical survey sort of approach, and, uh, and this morning we're going to primarily camp out in a text, but I'm going to show you a couple of other uh, parts, but we're going to look at God's covenant and, and Christ the mediator, and, um, and I, th- I think that uh, in, in those really do cover a couple of chapters in our confession, but uh, my aim this morning is for us to see this overarching covenant um, that ultimate, ultimately uh, was concluded uh, in the New Testament that has led to our uh, salvation, our being saved to the uttermost in Christ Jesus, and really... Um, if, if you're taking notes, you can, uh, I'm just going to give you this, and then I'm going to pray for the Lord to bless our time, and then we'll just kind of jump through uh, or work through um, Genesis chapter 3, a few passages here. But if you're jotting down notes, I'd have you write this down. God, he, he made a covenant to save us. He made a covenant to save us. He promised this in the Old Testament, and accomplish this in the New Testament. God made a covenant to save us. He promised this in the Old Testament, and he accomplished this in the New Testament. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give us a little bit of an overview of what a covenant is, and like I said, then we'll work through some various passages in Genesis chapter 3. Lord God, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you that Christ Jesus really is the anchor that holds within the veil, Lord, that it's Christ and Christ alone that has brought us reconciliation. It's Christ and Christ alone that has redeemed us. It's Christ and Christ alone, Lord, our mediator that uh, we'll be reminded of this morning, Lord, that really did uh, accomplish our salvation in the new covenant, Lord, that that fulfilled this covenant of grace that we're going to look at that was promised in the Old Testament. And God, we are eternally grateful for that. And so God, I pray that your word this morning would help equip us, Lord, would help us, uh, help build us up in Christ Jesus, that you would stretch us, God, that you would mature us, Lord, uh, and that ultimately we would be a local church that is committed to your gospel, is committed to uh, the uh, promotion of the Lordship of Jesus Christ to all the nations so that the Great Commission will be fulfilled. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, God, He made a covenant to save us, and He promised this in the Old Testament and accomplished it in the New Testament. But before we get uh, to, to looking at uh, Genesis chapter 3 and to various other texts, let me just give us a few definitions that will help us work through this morning's topic. The word covenant, covenant, it it means a a sworn promise that is certified by an oath. It's a sworn promise that is certified by an oath, and particularly a divine covenant, 
which is really what we're looking at this morning, a divine covenant is a unilateral, one-sided commitment. It's a unilateral, one-sided commitment. This means that, that God promised, as it relates to the covenant that we're looking at, this overarching covenant, God promised by himself to redeem and, and preserve his people, and he accomplished that by his Holy Spirit through the finished work of Jesus Christ. God promised by himself to redeem and preserve his people, and he accomplished that by his Holy Spirit through the finished work of Christ. That's what theologians call the covenant of grace, and I just have you jot that down, the, the covenant of grace, which is really the, the, the covenant of redemption, which we looked at a few weeks ago, applied in space and time by Jesus. In other words, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And it's the way that God's orchestrated salvation before time and space and saved his people since the fall of Adam. And, and, And we see multiple covenants throughout the Old Testament that are either explicitly mentioned or they're implied in Scripture that, that show us or make clearer for us this overarching covenant of grace. As I mentioned already, we see the covenant of redemption in Scripture. We looked at that a few weeks ago. In the book of Genesis, before the fall of man, we see the covenant of works that Adam and Eve really did have an eschatology, if you will, that they really were working toward something better than the Garden of Eden. They were working toward a day when there would be no serpent in the garden. And had uh, Adam obeyed God, he would have obeyed God to eternal life. But as we know, he disobeyed God. Right, and, and we again, we've talked about this, especially over the last couple of weeks. The second Adam, Christ Jesus, did what the first Adam should have done. Right? So we see the covenant of works before the fall, and then we see ultimately that Jesus, the second Adam, he kept the covenant of works that has led to our redemption. We see the Noahic covenant, right? God's covenant with Noah in the Old Testament. We see the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll look at briefly in a few minutes, we see the Mosaic covenant, right? And we see ultimately that through the giving of the law, uh, God summarizing the law through the Ten Commandments. We see the Davidic covenant between God and David. And then ultimately we see the greater, the better, the new covenant, which is Jesus accomplishing this covenant of grace that was promised all throughout the Old Testament. But even our Bibles are organized this way. The, the word testament is another word for the word covenant. So we have Old Covenant, we have New Covenant. Old Testament, New Testament. Covenant is a significant word for us as Christians. And so we, we should be familiar with that word. The Hebrew word for it is used 275 times in the Old Testament. And the Greek word for it is used 33 times in the New Testament. In other words, this, this word covenant, it matters. It matters, right? It, the, the Bible is concerned about covenant, which means God is concerned about covenant. But what is important for us to see, and what I want us to walk away understanding this morning, is that all of these covenants that I just briefly mentioned to you 
reveal progressively this overarching covenant, which is the covenant of grace, which again is God's promise by himself to redeem and preserve his people, which he accomplished by his spirit through the finished work of Christ. So with, with some definitions and with us trying to familiarize ourselves with the word covenant and the definition of covenant, particularly divine covenant and the covenant of grace, let's work through a, a few passages together that can help shed light on this. Now, I, like I said, I mentioned this passage over the last several weeks, but this is where we first see the covenant of grace promised. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, 15. And really, if you're the kind that writes in your Bible, this is an important passage. This is the, this is the kind you want to highlight or circle. But God here preaching the gospel says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Immediately, follow, following the fall, which is the account that we have here in Genesis chapter 3, we see God preaching the gospel. Right? He's preaching the gospel to Adam. He's preaching the gospel to Eve. He's preaching the gospel in the presence of the serpent. Right? For the serpent, who is the devil, we see his ultimate doom in God preaching the gospel. But for Adam and Eve, we see a promise. We see a promise here. We see this promise of grace. And really, this is what we see everywhere in the Old Testament, the, the promise of the covenant of grace. Whereas in the New Testament, we see the covenant of grace accomplished. We see the covenant of grace concluded. In Adam and Eve lived in light of this promise. They lived in light of this promise. They lived in light of the covenant of grace after the fall, which means that they were reconciled to God like you and I are, through faith. Faith in who? Faith in a mediator. Who's that mediator? Christ Jesus. For the glory of who? To the glory of God. And we even see them... If you look with me in verse 21, we even see them clothed by God. We see them clothed by God from the skin of an animal that the Lord himself sacrificed. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Who made that? The Lord God made it. He made it for who? For Adam and for Adam's wife, Eve. What did he make? Garments of skin. And what did he do with them? He clothed them. He clothed them. And I want to camp out here for just a moment because I don't want us to miss the significance of a passage that many of us have probably read a lot, but we've just kind of perhaps glossed over it, right? Sometimes for those of us that have been in church life for any length of time, we can become so familiar with some of these stories, especially this particular story, that we gloss over much of the meat of it or or really what God's trying to teach us from it. But Adam and Eve, they, they found out, as many of us know, they found out that they were naked through the disobedience of God's revealed will, Right? Genesis 2.17, don't eat from the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That's, that is God's revealed will. He told them not to transgress that law. And of course, we know that they, in fact, transgressed that law. And upon doing so, upon disobeying God, they tried to cover themselves, right? They tried to cover themselves. They tried to cover their shame. They tried to cover their disobedience. Look at verse 7 with me in Genesis chapter 3. Then the eyes of both, right, of Adam and Eve, the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. This right here is a t- kind of a self-atonement here, isn't it? Right? We, we saw last week that, that self-atonement is absolutely impossible. And, and, one of the, and, and the reason why it's impossible is because according to the Scripture, as I've said already in the service this morning, right, if we were to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 alone, the Apostle Paul calls us dead. Right? Again, not, not struggling, not doing okay, not good compared to other people, but we're dead, right? Dead in our trespasses and in our sins, right? So self-atonement is absolutely impossible. And one of the many problems that we see here, a danger that we even indulge in is that we would rather cover up our offense. We would rather cover up our shame than go to God and confess our sins, right? Maybe for many of us, the confession of sin part and the part where there's a moment of silence That might feel awkward and uncomfortable. For many of us, maybe that's the only space in our week where we have a moment of silence to contemplate our spiritual state. But oftentimes, our, 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 our reflexes, oftentimes, if we don't subdue those reflexes under the lordship of Jesus Christ, our reflexes are oftentimes geared toward covering up our offense or covering up our shame, right? We'd rather conceal our transgressions and make matters worse than humble ourselves and receive free forgiveness from the God whose compassions fail not. Matthew Henry puts it this way, we're more eager to save our reputation before men than obtain forgiveness from God. We're more eager to save our reputation before men than obtain forgiveness from God. The, The fig leaves, which is what Adam and Eve used to try to cover their own nakedness, they weren't sufficient to cover their disobedience. The fig leaves actually prevented reconciliation to God. They prevented forgiveness because they represented something more significant than fig leaves. It's not that the fig leaves in and of themselves were evil or wrong or bad. It's what they represented, which was a particular heart posture, Adam and Eve's heart posture, behind using them. They prevented forgiveness because they represented an attempt to fix things independent of God. The fig leaves represented this sort of attempt at self-salvation. They symbolized striving apart from the Lord. And after God preaches the gospel to Adam and Eve and to the serpent who's the devil who 
is doomed. And he works through all that their sin touched. He works through all the consequences of their sin. He sacrifices an animal in front of them. He sacrifices an animal in front of them. God showed Adam and Eve death. He showed them death. Death which was the wage of their sin. He showed that to them. He showed them the brutality of the sacrifice of the, the life of this animal. And then he clothed them in its skin. Now what does this demonstrate to us? What does this preach to us? The covenant of grace promised. The covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is promised right here in Genesis 3.15. The 1689, it helps summarize it for us in chapter 7, paragraph 3. It says, this covenant, speaking of the covenant of grace, is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, which we know is ultimately Christ Jesus, and afterwards, by farther steps, this is the, the other covenants that progressively reveal or bring into focus this covenant of grace, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. It was fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction. This is the covenant of redemption here that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved, did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in his state of innocency. This covenant of grace was preached and demonstrated to Adam and Eve. And we see that that it was a covenant of grace. And in the the sacrifice of, of, of this animal here, we see a, a, a foreshadowing, if you will, a foreshadowing of, of the sacrifice of Christ, who, again, as we, we saw a few weeks ago, the Scriptures say, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Scriptures say, was slain before the foundation of the world. And in the actual sacrifice, we see the body of the animal as this sort of shadow payment for for the sin of Adam and Eve pointing toward the substance, which is Christ the Lamb. The the Lord made an acceptable offering to himself with the sacrifice of this animal. Death was required, and Adam and Eve deserved the full weight of it, but God's righteous wrath focused on the animal instead of on Adam and Eve. How unfair is that? How unfair is that? Adam and Eve, and thus us, committed cosmic treason against a holy, righteous God of the cosmos, against the Creator. And, and instead of consuming them in His righteous wrath, He focused it elsewhere, on an animal. And He showed them mercy, and he gave them grace. Now, that, that, that was a temporal, right? A temporal just uh, a sacrifice. It was a shadow pointing Adam and Eve, and, and consequently to us who were sitting here many years later, looking at God's preserved word, right? 
This is pointing us, pointed them to a greater, better sacrifice. It pointed them to Christ's sacrifice. And Christ was better. Christ is better. Christ is superior. Christ's sacrifice was permanent, as the preacher to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The, the, The death of Christ pleased the Father. Christ Jesus was the only acceptable and permanent sacrifice whereby God's wrath toward sin, toward our sin, could be satisfied for all eternity. How unfair is that? We have a culture that's obsessed with fairness. This is unfair. This is unfair. Every single person ever created deserves the righteous wrath of God. Instead, God focused his wrath on his own son, the Lamb of God, and in doing so, accomplished this covenant of grace. And as a result, we receive forgiveness. We receive reconciliation at no doing of our own. That is really, really unfair. Our statement of faith says it this way. Chapter 8, paragraph 5 says, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, is fully satisfied. Not a little bit satisfied, not temporarily satisfied, but he's fully satisfied the justice of God. God's justice wasn't compromised through forgiving us. Right? He didn't change. He didn't budge his standards. His justice was satisfied through the sacrifice of Christ. It goes on and says, who procured reconciliation, who purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given him. I mean, this speaks to Christ's sufficiency right, as our Savior. Right? We serve a sufficient Savior, again, we just sang about this anchor, again, who is Christ, who holds within the veil, right? Christ, who, us being covered in his righteousness, clothed in his righteousness, can now enter the holy of holies. We can be in the presence of this holy, righteous, unchanging God. Christ Jesus accomplished that for us once and for all. Nothing else ever needs to be done. Christ is sufficient. And speaking to us being clothed in Christ's righteousness, if we go back to Genesis and we see that God used that animal, that sacrifice, right? That he himself, he himself killed that animal, right? And then he, he did what with that animal? He, he used the skin of the animal to clothe Adam and Eve, right? He clothed them with this rugged and thick, sorry about that. But this rugged and thick, just durable skin, if you will. And for those of us in Christ Jesus, we're clothed in an impenetrable clothing. Right? We're clothed in an impenetrable clothing. We not only find that our sins have been forgiven through his death and through his life, but as I said a moment ago, we find that by the Spirit of God, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus, right? So it's not that Jesus just took our sins upon himself up onto the cross where the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, right? It's not just that Christ 
was by the Spirit of God raised to life for our justification, but it was that we also gained something. We're also clothed in Christ's righteousness. Just as our sin is cast onto Christ, so in exchange, again, this unfair exchange, we are clothed in His righteousness eternally. And it's not in jeopardy. It's not going to fizzle out. It's not going to expire. There's nothing that you've done to earn it, and there's nothing that you can do to lose it. Right? This isn't a license for us to sin by any means, but for those of you that are in Christ whose heart's been captivated by the gospel, you don't want to dare abuse something like that because you know how precious it is. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We walk as people who are fully forgiven. And so when we come each and every Lord's Day, and hopefully we make a habit out of it for the rest of the six weeks, but when we come each and every Lord's Day and we give space in our worship service to confess our sins to God, those of us in Christ don't confess our sins to God that leads to despair, that leads to feeling condemned or judged. We confess our sins to God knowing that God judged Christ for our sins sins, and now we are fully forgiven and reconciled. There's freeness in confessing sins when you're forgiven. There's no need to hide. There's no need to cover yourself with fig leaves, figuratively speaking, of course. We can walk in the light. We can confess our sins to God. We can, when appropriate, confess our sins to one another. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So Adam and Eve, they, they were justified by faith, by looking forward to the Messiah, and we're justified by looking back in faith to what God has accomplished for us. So, so, so one overarching covenant, the covenant of grace that's promised in the Old Testament and accomplished in the New Testament Now, let's fast forward for a minute to Genesis 22, but you don't have to turn there. Instead of going to Genesis 22, flip over with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Genesis 22 is the account of Abraham and Isaac and the events that transpired there. But I want to show you how the preacher uh, to the Hebrews preaches this passage to his congregation because it helps us to see even more clearly this covenant of grace in Christ as our, our mediator. Hebrews chapter 6, starting with um, verse 13. And I'm going to read to verse 18. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his promise, right, because it's grounded in his unchangeable character, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, right, this predominantly Jewish congregation here that's being persecuted for their faith in Christ Jesus. This is hope that the preacher to the Hebrews offers to them. And now I'm going to harmonize this passage with another passage in just a moment. 
But this passage helps to teach us something here. What we see is the Abrahamic covenant, which I mentioned very briefly at the beginning of the message. And this was a real covenant between God and Abraham regarding Abraham's offspring. Right? And from our reading of the Old Testament, we know that Abraham, and, and the preacher of the Hebrews says it clearly, we know that Abraham received what he was promised in an earthly way, certainly, but spiritually speaking, because we have the New Testament, we know that God is speaking about an even grander reality. In this passage, God swears by his own name, right? Because there's no higher authority than the Lord, right? He enters into this covenant by his own name that he would bless Abraham, right? That he would multiply him. And, 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 and this swearing by his own name, this oath, again, is a covenant. It's a covenant. It's the Abrahamic covenant. But even bigger than that, it's speaking to this overarching covenant of grace, Biologically speaking, Abraham had one son from Sarah, his wife, which is Isaac, right? Certainly he had other sons with other women, but the son of promise was Abraham, right? And, and now while this was a fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham, and while there were plenty of grandchildren that flowed from them, the question we have to ask ourselves, that we should ask ourselves is, is this all that God meant by multiply, by saying the word multiply, when he told Abraham, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Is this all that God meant here? Or is there something else that's going on in the Abrahamic covenant? Again, I think it, that it's the promise of the covenant of grace. And we see that ultimately God has a bigger plan in mind. He has a cosmic spiritual plan in mind. And while the author of Hebrews here is speaking at least primarily to believing Jews, we know that Gentiles and Jews who are in Christ, right, who have been saved by Christ Jesus are considered who? Sons of of Abraham. They're considered to be sons of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 verses 7 and 9 says this, know that, know then that it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, get this, preached the gospel. Preached the gospel to who? To Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And if you drop down to verse 14, we see how it happened. In Christ Jesus, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Hey, ultimately, this offspring, which the Lord says is to be as numerous as the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore, right? Genesis twenty-two seventeen, is to include all nations. All nations. And, and how is this possible? How is this possible? It's, through, it's possible through the covenant of grace that is the overarching promise in the Old Testament 
that's accomplished in the New Testament. In Christ Jesus, the blessing that God promised to Abraham extends to people from every tribe, extends to people from every tongue, extends to people from every nation. You're here this morning. I'm here this morning because the finished work of Christ has been brought to us in the covenant of grace that we see superseding, if you will, this Abrahamic covenant. Abraham ultimately looked forward to the day which God in Christ would spiritually fulfill this covenant, right? Abraham saw the fulfillment of this covenant as it related to his physical posterity, but the New Testament even teaches us, look, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse uh, 56, Jesus says, "Your, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Right, speaking even to just perhaps Christ in his pre-incarnation there. But Abraham saw the covenant of grace promised through the covenant that God made with him. God through Jeremiah spoke about this very thing in chapter 31, verses 33 to 34. It says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. It's the promise of the covenant of grace. Look back with me in Hebrews, specifically chapter 10. It's verses 12 to 17 because we see that God in Christ accomplished this very covenant of grace promised in Jeremiah 31. Start with verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time, and again, not temporarily, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, right? And you guys have heard me talk about this, but the implications of Christ being seated at the right hand of God is significant for us. Verse 13, continuing, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and then he quotes Jeremiah here, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Christ Jesus fulfilled this covenant of grace that was promised. And we know that Gentiles have been grafted into this. All right? Christ's one body, right? the church, made up of all those who are in Christ from all different nations. All right? Christ, our mediator, fulfilled this covenant made before the world began. Right again, the covenant of grace is the covenant of redemption applied in time and space. And we, Jews and Gentiles, we benefit from it. And th- this isn't our own doing, as Paul says. It's, it's the gift of God. And so as we read our Old Testament, and, and this has an impact on the way that we read our Bibles, we should read our Old Testament and see this overarching promise that's progressively revealed through these other other covenants, the Old Testament anticipates, eagerly anticipates, when Christ breaks into our world through the incarnation, when he becomes like us so that he can redeem us. 
And we see that he did exactly that. Right? Through his humiliation. Right? His, his life, his ministry, his active, his passive obedience. Right? Taking our sins up on the cross. The Father pouring out his righteous wrath on Christ for our sin and us being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Having confidence that this, in fact, was accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus. So we look back now, just as those who have gone before us in the Old Testament look forward to this covenant of grace that was promised, we look back and we say, God did exactly what he promised. Did exactly what he promised. And we can trust him, he's unchanging, and he holds us in the palm of his hand, and no one can snatch us away. A couple of takeaways for us this morning. One I've mentioned, when we read our Bibles, we should see a cohesiveness in the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, again, God promised the covenant of grace through various other covenants. In the New Testament, he accomplished that promise. In Christ, God fulfilled the covenant of grace. Secondly, Christ's sacrifice is better, permanent, and eternally sufficient, unlike all those sacrifices we see in the Old Testament. They were only signposts and temporal directing us to Jesus Christ in the New Covenant, the New Testament. And then third, our God is a covenant keeper. He kept the various covenants in the Old Testament and even more so the superseding covenant of grace. He's trustworthy and deserving of all our devotion, affection, and praise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that, God, you did exactly what you promised that you would do, Lord, and we can stand redeemed because you're a keeper of your word. And so help us rest in that, Lord. On those days where we struggle, where we wrestle, where we're uncertain, Lord, help us to rest in that. And Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.